Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to look at your word. We ask that you help us to see what you would have. We ask your spirit to lead and guide us in this uh, study. In your son's precious name, amen. amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses called unto Israel and said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all the, his land, the great temptations which with your eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not waxed old in, upon you and your shoe has not waxed old upon your foot. You have not eaten bread, neither have you drunk wine or strong drink, that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And when you come into this land, Sihon, uh, come into this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us into battle, and we smote them, and we took their land and gave it into an inheritance unto the Reubenites and unto the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So we're going to stop there for just a moment and start looking at these. As we've been saying, the book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. It's basically one long sermon from Moses. It's, it, and uh, to the people, and it's taken us many months to get through it, but it's one long message to them. And it says, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And what's another name for Horeb? Sinai. So the very first covenant that he was talking about was when the law was given to them at Mount Sinai. And remember, this is 40 years later, and Moses is reiterating the covenant with the children of Israel. And this one is... These ones, most, some, many of them weren't. The older ones were there, but they were children. Everybody 20 years and older died in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So this is really second telling to a lot of these people. It's the first time they've heard all this. Technically, it should be the second time they've heard it, but you're right. For many of them, it is the first time they have heard it. Because they were so young. Because they were too young to have cared or, in some cases, not born. Which is when he gets down there and says, you have seen, it's kind of an amazing thought because many of them have not seen. They have just heard. He's making another covenant with them in the land of Moab, which is on the east side of the Jordan. And it, as he had said later on, this is where the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are going to dwell. And remember, why are they wanting to dwell there? Because after the battles with them, they said, this is good, this is good land for our cattle. We want, our, we want to live here. And they were told, okay, you can have this land under one condition. The condition is that the fighting men had to go in with the people and, and fight. And they said they would do that. And verse 2 says, And Moses called unto all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt and in, unto Pharaoh and unto all of his servants and unto all his land. So here Moses is primarily talking to the ones that were, are older in this population, the ones that have lived the 40 years that were under 20 at the time that they started. So he's talking to those that are around 60, 60 years old to about probably 40. So 40 to 60 years old, he's talking to them because they probably do remember. Because remember, this event in Egypt 
is a big deal. When the spies go into the promised land the second time and they meet Rahab, what does Rahab tell them? We have heard what your God has done to Egypt and we know that you're going to win. Okay, so this is, even though it's 40 years ago, it's still widely known that this God of these people has devastated Egypt. It's a big event. It, it very similar to when the, the wall in, in uh, Germany fell, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. Everybody knows that it's big news that it fell, and it still is to this day that people know that it fell. This is the type of event that this destruction in Egypt was. People know it. They remember it. Yeah. And this would be the same thing for this event. This is an event that they're going to talk about. What are we doing out here in the wilderness walking around? Well, God, God uh, destroyed Egypt you know, for us and go over all the ten plagues and, and the Red Sea. Years. And we've been out here for 40 years now, but God is still moving. And so he's, he's going in and he goes, The great temptations which your eyes have seen, the signs and the great miracles. Yet... The Lord has not given you a heart to perceive or eyes to see or ears to hear unto this day. How many times do people see the great works of God and not perceive them, not understand them? Every day. <laughs> Every day for the regular world. Mm -hmm. The sad thing is that Christians oftentimes don't perceive the hand of God at work. And here he's talking to the people, go, you don't even have the heart to know, understand what's going on. And you know, one of the saddest things is when, you're, when you see what God's doing on around you and you look around you and people just are oblivious to what God's doing. You see God's hand moving. You see God moving in many ways and people are just like, oh, la, 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 nothing special about today. God is doing great things all around you and you don't even begin to see. And many Christians are just that way. They don't see what God's doing and the great blessings that are coming our way. And possibly even the great curses that are coming our way. We're, we're living in a time where we are sitting so close to the end of days that it could be in our day. And I know that's been said for 2,000 years, but we really could see Jesus return in our day. We're that close. We're seeing good being called evil, evil being called good, uh, Christians being persecuted, millions of Christians dying. The world has heard the gospel or can hear the gospel. And any day now, we could be going home and the tribulation period could be starting. We're that close. Many things we never understood how they could happen are right around the corner. We say, oh, yes, I see that. I see this. We see the, the revelation telling us that the economy will totally crash. And many uh, financial leaders are predicting that the crash of our economy and the world is just around the corner. Literally, many of them have said it should have already happened, and it's still just around the corner. And that doesn't mean that it won't happen, it just means it's taken a while. And we want to be able to say, what is God doing? And our prayer really should be, God, give me a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear. Many times the prophet said, you know, Jesus said it quite often, let him who has eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, see and him that has ears to hear, to hear. And most of the time, people didn't understand it. They chased after him for what they could get. Give us miracles, give us healings, do this, do that. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the best, I'm giving you the teaching, the word of God, and you're not wanting 
it. And too many times people chase after the gifts and things God can give them rather than chasing after God. The greatest thing we can do is chase after God. God, come into my life. Be more and more of me. Be, be changing who I am and desire him. You know, I find myself every day realizing that I, I tend to think in the means of the prosperity gospel. That I seem, I seem to count my rewards that I get and I count that as for doing what I'm supposed to do, which is not the way to think, is it? Your blessings do have... That's how Job thought, and our blessings do oftentimes come in as, a, as prosperity and, and, and natural gains. But the big question is, what do you do when things don't seem to go right? Do you still consider, what, how is God moving in my life? Job, at the end of his life, started realizing that God had a plan for all that hardship he was going through. Now, it took him a little while to get there. There's the tangible rewards, but you know, part of it is when our attitude changes toward what we're going through. If you think about some of the stuff that you're, that's going on in your life and realize how you would have reacted two years ago, three years, four years ago, and you're going, I'm seeking God. I'm being blessed by God, even though sometimes it doesn't always seem like it. I just tell myself God's in control. He knows what, what's going to happen. And it makes all the difference in the world. And many times as Christians, we go through hardships with that peace of mind. And this is why I say sometimes when you look back over it and you kind of think back, wow, I just went through something pretty tough that would have sent me over the edge, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and I would have just been totally panicked. And all of a sudden you just had that peace of mind because God was in control and you just go through it. And it's really no different than it was in the past. Your reaction and your attitude is different. Most of this is the dealings that uh, Moses has had with him all over the time. Every time things got hard, they would gripe and complain and, and be upset. We, we want water. We want food. We want this. We want that. You know, we're, tired uh, we're tired of manna. We want meat. You know, we're, missing the, we're missing the vegetables we used to have. In, so they have their eyes on something else. They're putting their eyes on, on other things other than God and not being happy with what they were given. And if our eyes are on what we're being given by God and not on him, we will never be happy with what he gives us because it'll only last for a little while before we get tired of it. And we're going to get more into what they got tired of. But we do the same thing. You know, this is one of the things I keep telling us. We need to be very careful that we don't confuse God's blessings with the way life is just supposed to be. He gives us blessings, and we need to be appreciative of those blessings. And as long as we stay appreciative of the giver, he will keep giving. Now, whenever anything's good or bad, good, God always is behind it. Yes, and this is exactly the case. If we always keep in mind that God is in control, even when something seems to be bad, we'll go, God, you're in control. I don't understand this, but I'm going to just be at peace because you're in control. And that can be even the blessings of God if we're focused on the blessings and not on God the giver. Okay, and this is why it's very important that we focus always on... I think that's what most of us are at. Most people start with focusing on the gifts. Maturity is when you start focusing on 
the giver of the gifts and desiring the giver more than the gifts. And we go back to Job, and Job's focus was not on God so much. I mean, he was a godly man, he offered, but his, his focus was on the gifts that God was giving him, and God had to kind of shake him up and say, hey, I'm the giver of the gifts, focus on, on me. But how do you differentiate between what, what, is, what is God given and what is just, sometimes you just run into things, you know? Yeah, but God gives I was going to be the question. I, I was going to say, is anything not given by God? Nothing good comes from anything but God. Because God could stop it at any time that he wants. So conversely, does that mean God also gives bad? Or allows bad. Allows bad. I don't know that he gives, but he allows. Just as, as more, more, more properly would be to say that he allows good and bad in our life, and he's in control. Right. The rain, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The, the bad things he allows in our life are to, to test us. Do we truly trust in him? Do we truly want to rely on him? And it'll also show where our heart is. Are we going to act the way the world does and get frustrated? Or are we going to lay, our, lay it at the feet of God and say, God, you know, you're, you're sovereign, you're in control. My greatest faith and rest has been because I totally now have come to the conclusion God is in control and most of the time lay it back on his feet you know and say God you allowed this to happen and, and there's many times where I'll say I don't understand why but God you've allowed it you've promised it'll be for good and I'm just going to rest in both of those truths and those truths are probably going to be the things that give you the greatest peace God is in control and whatever he sends your way is for, for good not necessarily for your good but for the good of the kingdom okay and if we stop and just rest in it there's great peace in it there really is great peace when we just rest in those two truths god you're in control and you're going to and you promised it's for good and just learn those learn that phrase for well be careful now that's not necessarily that's biblical but that's a prosperity gospel that's the the song from one of my favorite movies i must have done something good <laughs> It's not necessarily true, but what we want to keep in mind, when things are going bad, the first question we ask is, do I deserve this? Have I been disobedient? Have I done something that deserves punishment? If I have, then I say, God, I confess that I've done wrong. Help me to endure this punishment and, and get through and learn the lesson. And that's the next thing. God, what are you trying to teach me through yes, this? Definitely. What are you trying to teach me through this? What are you, what are you testing me in? It could be slow down. It could be listen. It could be... It, it could be, and what have I said normally? It's if you've learned something in the scripture, be ready for the test. It's do you really believe that word? We, we have just talked about, just now about God is in control and God turns everything for good. I would say expect something bad to happen in your life just to see, do you believe it? Okay. Oh, there has been a lot. But so... The first thing we go, do I deserve this? Is it punishment? And then the next thing is, God, what are you trying to teach me? That's what I'm... And help me pass this, help me pass this lesson that you're trying to do. And so we all have this going on, and this is what that... They didn't have that heart. They, they weren't looking for God. They weren't looking for them. They were just looking for whatever they could get. And the sad thing is, there's so many... But that's the world. It's the world. All the world does that. But the sad thing is how many Christians... Do the same thing. God, what, 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 what have you done for me lately? What are you doing for me today? Instead of looking at God for everything that he is, we need to be looking for that relationship with the giver of what we have, not just, God, what are you doing for me? 
That's the world's way of looking at it. And if we, as a Christian, look at it that way, we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. And it is the prosperity gospel. It is that whole idea of, you know, if I do good, I deserve what I get. You know, and then we go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Basically, seek after God, not, not what you're getting from him. And the more we seek after God, the more we're going to get <laughs> in return because he knows he can trust us with it because we're not seeking after what we can get. Because if we're going after what we can get, it always has a limited shelf. And so we seek after God. Now let's look at some of the things that they weren't noticing. Verse 5. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not waxed old upon you, and your shoes have not waxed old upon your feet. Their clothes did not wear out. For 40 years. Now, for some people, that would be a horrible thought, not having to replace their, their clothing for 40 years, having to wear the same clothes. But you realize wandering in the wilderness. That's hard. That's hard. It's hard on clothes to be wandering. But their shoes did not wax old. They did not. And another one tells us that their feet did not swell. Wandering around in the wilderness would make your feet swell at various times. You would have lack of water. You'd have lack of nutrition at times. And there would be the swelling. And he says, you have not had any of those problems. But sometimes your clothes wear out before you even, even have had them for a year anymore, you know, but you've washed them. But he's saying for 40 years, you have not had to worry about clothes. Or shoes. They haven't, they haven't worn out. And it says, you have not eaten bread, neither have you drunk wine or strong drink, that you might know that I am the Lord your God. This is kind of an amazing thing, because think about this. Bread, in every nation, every country, every civilization, some form of bread is the staple of your food. Whether it's pita breads in the, in the Middle East, or the French breads of France, you know, to the... You know, all the breads all over the world, sourdough breads, you know. Bread is the centerpiece of the meals and have been for years. He said for 40 years they haven't eaten bread. Why? Because they didn't grow wheat or barley or anything else. What did they have? They had manna. Now, did they make some kind of bread out of manna? I don't know, but not, not the kind of bread that he's talking about. You know, Pastor, while you're talking about food, they left Egypt with livestock and stuff. Uh, since they didn't eat meat, these animals must have been producing and everything. Uh, there, there must have been a heck of a lot of... Uh, well, they probably ate some meat. They just weren't eating all of it up. Oh. Yeah, because you figure three and a half million people, if they, if they were to have eaten a lot of their meat, they would have they would have wiped out their livestock pretty quick. It wasn't that they didn't eat because they've got sacrifices they're making and they get to eat from those sacrifices, but their main meal is the manna, yeah. the water, and the quail that God provided for them. The main meal was that, and you said they did eat? Part of, part of the sacrifices, they would oftentimes get back part of the sacrifice to eat. Well, they didn't eat meat like we eat meat. Right now. Very few places eat meat the way Americans eat meat. Uh, American, you know, my dad had a story of trying to buy steak in Scotland. And he wanted to get five steaks. <laughs> and he could not get the butcher to cut the, cut the meat the way he wanted it. He, because he, couldn't, he just couldn't conceive of a family eating 
half inch, one inch thick steak, so the butcher just couldn't get, couldn't make himself hardly cut a steak that big. No, my dad keeps going, no, I want a steak. You know? So, but there's no place in the, in the world that eats meat the way Americans eat meat. It's funny, all these years that went straight over my head. They were doing sacrifices and part of that meat went to the... Yeah, and that's when we were doing Leviticus. So there's one specific, the, the Thanksgiving offering that where you got back about half of your, half of what you offered. But no veggies. You no know, veggies. You'd have to add the vegetables to it. But, so yeah, they were starting to, they would eat, they would, they would eat other meats, but you got to figure they weren't eating the meat the way we would. They weren't slaughtering a cow all the time, otherwise they would have run out of, out of cows and goats and sheep. So yeah, they, they offered them, they, they would eat them. Their main meal came from these items. But again, how many times did they, they got to a place where they complained about manna, the perfect food, the one that kept them without swelling feet and kept them healthy, that nobody was lame, nobody was sick. And they complained, we're tired of this stuff. Now, if you think about it, I don't know if you've ever worked in a restaurant or something where you've had the same food often enough that eventually it just didn't want to have any of it. It's not that hard. It doesn't take, it doesn't take that long. Uh, I worked in pizza for, for the better part of 12 years, and I got to where I didn't want a pizza. Even though you can have all kinds of different toppings, I finally, after a while, started tasting the same. I worked at a place that served steaks, and I started having steak. And I love steak. I never thought I'd ever get tired of steak. After about seven months, I didn't want to have a steak anymore. It was like, okay, I've had enough steak. Uh, so I can understand after 40 years of eating manna how this could happen, that they would get tired of it. Even though it's the perfect food, they probably wasn't tired. And what is manna? Do they sell that still? Manna, doesn't, manna was given to God. It was little seeds like coriander seed that they found on the, in the oh. dew every morning. There's no manna unless they can find the, the Ark of the Covenant that has a pot of it in it. So this was a special food that God gave them. It doesn't exist nowadays. So they just ate it straight out? Or was that sunflower seeds? You know, it doesn't tell us how they ate it. Uh, uh, Keith Green uh, sang a song about manna, and he goes, he goes all kinds of different manna products. You know, we're having manna burgers tonight and manna shakes. And, you know, and I, kind of, and I kind of can picture this, you know, that there probably were cookbooks out there, you know, how... 101 ways to, to prepare your manna, you know, because it would be kind of old to eat the same thing, same way every day. So there had to be some, something different they did with it. The word manna means, what is it? Okay, they went out in the morning and had these little seed-like things out there that melted when the sun came up. And so they weren't really seeds, but they weren't plant. They were special food that God provided for them. It has been described as the food of the gods. I mean, how, did you, how did they figure that out? I mean, somebody Moses told them in the morning there'll be manna, go pick it. Grab, grab an omer of, omer of manna for each, each person in your food and anything that's left, you know, don't take and save it over for the next day because it'll be molded, moldy and mildewed and, and uh, worms will grow in it. And those, then there were some people that saved it. And then he said on the Sabbath, you know, on the, on the fifth, uh, sixth day, he says, gather two days worth because tomorrow there won't be any manna on the ground. And God got angry at them because many of them did not get, you know, get two days worth of manna because mostly because they remember the first guys that had stinking, stinking manna being left over the day, you know, on the second day. But this was a God's gift to them. And what it is, we really don't know. It's described as a white, white seed-like thing. Save over to the next day. We were not to.
God's mercies are new every morning. He feeds us new every day. So he says, I'm going to provide for you daily. Do not try to save it. But on the Sabbath day, you were to do no work. He says, go pick, go pick two days worth on, on the sixth day. And he, and he specially made it stay for the seventh day. God was teaching to be obedient and that there are new blessings every day. Which is why do we read our scriptures? Why do we come before God every day? Because his mercies are new every morning. We don't live on yesterday's food. We don't live on last week's message or last year's message. Uh, there are some pastors out there that have about you know, a few years worth of messages and, and they just get to the end of it and they repeat it all over again. <laughs> well, ideally it's living off five years of you know, food from five years ago and it really does not... It is cheating because you're not taking and, and feeding the people something new. And their mindset is the church keeps changing over five years. There's mostly new people in the church, so I can teach all over again. But the sad thing is many pastors don't do enough st personal study anyway. They, they get into the word to teach and forget to study personally. And sometimes, especially now that I have a second job, I'm finding myself falling into that sometimes. That I'm forgetting to study for myself and just trying to study for all this. depends on how big it is of what you're praying for. Primarily, I would say you need to be thinking about the now and not so much the future, but let's say you're, you're looking for God, what am I going to do with my contracts up in a year? What, am I, you know, what, what would you like me to do and start talking to him at that time? Not, a bad, not too bad a deal. We could let it go. If it's a big issue, I mean, praying for somebody's salvation, it's not gonna necessarily happen today, so you wanna be praying and it may not happen for a month, a year, or health issues or, I wouldn't get too much into health issues if you're, if you're not having problems at this point, because that kind of borderlines on being worried about tomorrow and not today. And that's a good thing because we should be, if you're teaching, you shouldn't be waiting at the last moment to be teaching. I start reading the scriptures that I'm going to be speaking on. I try to do it a week, or, week ahead of time just so I can let things germinate and think in my mind. And then and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that because you want it to be fresh. Your, your most things, but by reading the scriptures that you're going to be speaking on ahead of time, things start percolating in your mind, and then when you start studying, things start firming up. Verse 7, And when you came into this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to do battle, and we smote them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance unto the Reubenites, unto the Gadites, unto the half-tribe of Manasseh. So this was going back again over his history. And this is more recent history. This is history they know about because they're the ones that just fought this battle because it literally has just happened in their, in their, in their time. That they came on these lands and the kings came out to battle them and said, no, you're not crossing our land and decided to fight them instead. And God gave them victory and they took the land. And then it was given to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their inheritance. All right? Therefore, keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And this goes back to the prosperity. When we're obedient, when we are obedient, God will usually give us blessings. The most important thing is look to the giver, not what you've received. Because the prosperity gospel is all about what you're getting. And basically it says, I did the right things, therefore I deserve what I'm getting. 
God, you, 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 and they might go, God, you gave it to me, but really it's, I deserve, I deserved it. I deserve it. I've been good. And so it's most important to be able to look and say, God, I want to look to you. You're the gift. So we want to be very careful about all of those things. All right, going on from verse 10. You stand this day, all of you before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, even with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, your stranger that is in your camp, from the hewer of the wood to the drawer of your water, that you should enter into this covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you this day, that he may establish you today for a people unto himself, and that, that he may be unto you a God, as he has said unto you, and as he has sworn unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither only with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that stands here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. For you know not, for you know how you have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how you came through the nations which you have passed by, and you have seen their abominations and their idols, wood, stones, silver, and gold, which were among them. Lest you, you, there should be among you man or woman, family or tribe, whose heart turns away this day from the Lord your God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. And it come to pass when... Came, when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will spare him, but, not, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will, will, shall smoke against that man, and the curses that are written in the book shall, be lie, shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under the heavens. And that's the end of the, chapter, uh, end of the verse. That was a long verse. <laughs> Sentence. So verse 10. You stand all this day before your God. And he gets a long list of who's standing before God. We need to always remember that we stand before God. The God of heaven, the God of all creation, we stand before him. Not just Christians, but the entire world stands before God mm -hmm. as the ultimate judge. Amen. Yes, because we are, we are truly all in a battle constantly. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Pray without ceasing. And I've made, I've made this statement many times. We get into trouble when we forget that we are in battle. So yes, we are soldiers. We are in a spiritual war always. Satan does not like it when we're walking with God. And he's going to try to stop us from walking with God. Now, this is kind of something that's very interesting. Sometimes the, you're in most danger of attack from Satan just after God's done something great in your life. Because Satan wants you to stop thinking about what he's done. You can get complacent. You can get happy. But there's also just a time when you're on a spiritual high. You've just had a great victory. You do get complacent. You do kind of take it easy for a moment. And that's when Satan can attack so strongly and it is when he's going to attack because if you're just a christian sitting in a pew he's, he's lost you he knows he's lost you you're a christian you're saved but if all you're going to do is sit in a pew and do nothing for god you are not a threat for him he'll let you just sit there and go to church every week 
and give you a few t- small temptations. But when you step out to do something for God, you step out to teach, you step out to evangelize, you step out to, to speak to people about Jesus, the more you do it, the more you become a target for Satan. Which is why it's very important for us not to judge people when they fall. Because one thing about it is, what made them fall? Would I have fallen long before they did? And this is something that we need to keep in mind. Somebody who's doing big things for God is going to draw a lot of attention from Satan and might just fall. And we're going, well, how could that person fall? You know, look, look how bad they are. Well, they might have gone through intense battle that would have made the average Christian die, die of fright. You know, not, even, not even endure at all. They would have just passed away you know, from, from the thought of what they went through. We need to be careful. We need, and this is why we need to love one another when, when, when something's happened. And go, you know, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to lift you up. You know, and not be like, well, look at me. I didn't fall. Well, you might not have fallen. You might not have even had half the attacks they had. We want to be very careful because it is all God's grace that keeps us either standing or falling even. Because if we, if we don't keep in focus on him, we're going to fall. It's just everybody a given. Everybody's in their own relationship. And they're, they're, everybody's in a different place in time with God than I might. We're all at a different place in time with God. There's different growth that we've had. And somebody who is older in Christ, who's going through some things, you know, you might look at it and say, well, how did that person fall? Well, we don't know what they've been going through. The attacks that I get after 44 years and the time I've been in God's Word are going to be much different than somebody who's a brand new Christian who's just starting out. And if they got the attacks that I had on them, they would probably go, this Christianity's not worth it. I'm not doing this anymore. And we need to be very careful with one another, to love one another and to lift one another up because it is so easy. It is easy for us to judge one another. It really is. Because if we get into our flesh at all, well, I haven't fallen. What's wrong with them? You know, I'm doing really good. How come they're not doing good? We've got to be so careful. You know, well, you know, look, at their, you know, look at their family. It's all messed up. They must have done lots of things wrong. Well, we don't know for sure whether they did anything wrong. Because they may just have strong-willed kids who are going to be wrong no matter what. And we might have had complacent kids that were going to be good no matter what. We don't know. And we need to just be able to pray for one another and lift people up because we don't know. We stand before God and he is going to take and deal with us each individually. I love the fact that God has an individual plan for every single person. He knows what's right for that person. He knows how to motivate each individual. Do you realize that there's some people who need to be hit hammered hard by God, otherwise they're not going to listen because they're just that stubborn and stiff-necked. There's other people that don't need to be touched hardly at all by God because they're just so soft-hearted that they're going to turn to God with just the little message that they read in the Word of God. We never know. I was listening to a pastor this week that was answering a question. He goes, why did John, uh, why did Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, get uh, struck dumb for questioning God when somebody like Mary, the mother of Jesus, questioned God and was, and was given a blessing. And his answer was great. Mary's a young girl who's just now starting to learn 
how to follow God. And, and her question was really an honest question. Hey, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't known a man. How can I be pregnant? Zacharias was a leader, a priest, taking his turn in the temple of service, who should have known better than to question God. And God says, okay, you don't believe me when I've talked to you in the temple with an angel? Fine, you cannot talk for nine months. But you know, it made a lot of sense. For those who have been given much, much is required. The more we know about God, the more we've been following God, the more he expects us to be obedient without question. The younger we are and the less we've had experience we've had with God, we don't know his voice as well. It's not that big a deal to be, God, I don't understand. I don't, I, I, I don't understand anything. I, don't, I, I need your help. I need your help. But when you've been taught, you've been trained, you've been walking with God for a while, you should begin to know his voice. Well enough that when he speaks, you go, okay, God, your, your, your servant hears. When you had Samuel in, in the house when God first spoke to him, and he goes, Samuel, and he wakes up thinking it's Eli and runs to Eli. What did you want, master? And he goes, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You're dreaming. Comes back a second time. What do you want, master? He goes, I haven't called you. And then the third time it goes, Eli realizes that it's God's voice. He goes, next time you hear the voice, say, speak, your servant listens. You get to learn God's voice. And our attitude should be, God, speak, I'm listening. Not, not I'm, I'm so dense and dull that I'm not listening. I can't, see, I can't see anything, but God, I am listening. It takes time to get there. We may never be, good, be, be able to perfect it, but you know we should be getting better at it with each passing year, each passing month, each passing day. We should be better at hearing God's word and hearing his voice and responding. Because when you start responding, great things happen. You'll find yourself talking to people you never would have imagined you would talk to, saying things that you never even thought you'd ever say to people because you're listening to God's voice and you're letting him fill your mouth. I love listening when Sharon talks about it, people in her shop and how she's starting to speak things that she never would have thought of saying to people. Uh, it is so wonderful when we just start opening our mouths and see how God's growing. Amy, with her desire of less worry and more... <laughs> more in living at peace. You know, the fun thing is watching people grow in Christ in whatever level, whatever way, but to hear the testimonies of how God is changing lives from the people here. But what we need to learn is that God oftentimes speaks with a small voice, very quiet. Why is it quiet? Why is it small? Because he wants us to learn to listen and not get so wrapped up in what's going on in our life that we get focused on all the confusion because if we can start focusing back on God the confusion disappears now whether it actually disappears or just my attitude changes toward it I think it's more our attitude changes toward it because I've told you many times I've gone through problems and things in my life and I kind of look back over what you know, and I'm going wow what a mess back there when did all that happen and realize my mind was focused my, my attitude was focused on God and he kept everything from affecting us. But it is all on, are we focused on the giver? Are we focused on God? Are we in a relationship with God or am I focused on what I can see? We walk by faith, not by sight. Four times in the scripture that verse is given. <laughs> we walk by faith, not by sight. And you know what? 
I think it's in there so many times because God wants us to do it, but it's also very hard to do. It's very hard to walk by faith and not by sight. It takes practice. It takes work at it because our mind and our bodies see and feel what's going on around us, and it's hard sometimes to walk by faith and just say, uh, God, you promised. And this is when I come back to what we started with. God is in charge, <laughs> and he's promised that everything's going to be good. The more I grab hold of those verses, the more I can walk by faith. God, it seems like if everything's gone, gone wrong. God, it seems like you kind of uh, left, left the planet, you know, and, and everything's a mess. We need to understand he has not left the planet. He has not left our life. It just seems like everything, and our emotions are playing havoc with us, and we need to say, God, you're in charge. And I'm going to just know that you're going to make things work, work out. And see, verse 12, that you should enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and unto his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you this day. Do you realize that God has made even a covenant with us? We live under the new covenant. What is that new covenant? Jesus died for our sins and wants to live in us. What a covenant. <laughs> what a covenant we have is he died for our sins, has forgiven us of our sins, and wants to live in us. It's so simple. It is, it is very simple. It is so simple that it's hard to live. And the contract that he gives with us is really that he's done it. All we have to do is accept it. And then he comes in and he changes who we are. But he puts it in front of us. He says, here is the covenant I have with you. I want to live with you. And we just need to be able to learn to live in that covenant. Rest, rest, faith, rest. That I am just going to rest by faith in what God has promised me and not fight against it. We spend too, way too much energy fighting against what comes our way rather than just resting in God. Looking for him to be our protector. Psalms is so full of, you are my shield, you are my fortress, you are my hiding place, you are my refuge, you are my buckler, defender. my defender. God wants us to just rest in him and let him be the one that defends us. He's my shield. You know, when, when people attack you, we have a choice. We can get all defensive in the flesh or we can just say, God, you take care of it. And hang up the phone. <laughs> hang up the phone if that's, you know, if that's an option, you do that. But you know, it's very hard to have a one-sided fight. No matter how hard you want to try to do a verbal fight one-sided, it really only goes so long before it stops. A little more on the physical side, because your body's going to take the punishment. But on a, on a verbal fight and people attacking you, if you're not responding, there's not a whole lot they can do. They're going to get tired of it after a while, and God's going to put conviction. They want you to my situation like the world is always wanting us, they expect us to fight back because that's what they would do. Because we, we in our flesh, and our flesh wants to defend ourselves. We find ourselves wanting to, unless we get really into God and say, God, I just want you to defend me. And my advice is most of the time is just let God defend you. People will defend you eventually because people will go, that doesn't sound like that person. I had somebody tell me something about somebody, start telling me, well, they said this, and I go, that doesn't sound like them, so I don't think I want to hear this. It's not, I don't believe it. That's not the way that they would respond. And it's very important for us to be able to just sit back and say, God, you defend. 
Because how many times have you tried to defend yourself and you said something really stupid that you wish you hadn't said trying to defend yourself? Whether you attacked somebody in the process or you said something really dumb in your own defense. And it's like, that just gave them cannon, cannon, a folder to use against you even more. And many times it is better just to be quiet and let God stand in your defense. And I would say almost every time. Jesus, when he was attacked, just, let, just would let it go by and he would go some other direction. Now, when he was defending his father's house, he drove the money changers out of his father's house. There are times for defense. The scriptures tell us to be angry and sin not. I'm going to tell you my first rule of thumb on that. If I'm angry about somebody that's, something that's been done to me and I'm angry about something that's some, that I've been hurt, I'm going to sin in my anger. Because I, when I'm defending myself, every time something bad happens. If I'm defending somebody else in their honor, I have to be careful not to cross over into sin, but it's a lot easier to not sin in that situation because I'm defending what you are doing to the widow, to the orphan, to the, to the defenseless person that, that I'm defending. And you can be able to be angry and sin not when you're going against something being done against somebody else, as Jesus did when he took the whip and he drove the money changers and flipped their tables over. He was not being nice. He was not being the kind, gentle Jesus that everybody wants to think about. He had a bull, he had a whip in his hand and, a, and throwing tables around and driving them out. And I don't think that he wasn't using the whip to, to speed them up. <laughs> I believe fully that he was using that whip to speed them up, not, not just showing them a whip. Okay, but he was saying, this is my father's house and you're making it a den of thieves and I'm not going to allow that. All right. So we see that aspect on it. And God says, I put before you today the covenant. Are you, will you choose? Same thing he said to them when, in Mount Sinai. Today we have a covenant. Will you be obedient? And they weren't obedient for 40 years. And yet he's saying today. That stuff in the, um, in the, the dead of thieves stuff like that. Does that fall under, um, you know, is doing his father's work? That was doing his father's work, yeah. Well, what was happening in the temple at that time, they were setting up tables and they were exchanging it because you had to have a perfect sacrifice. So you would come in with your lamb that was the best one in your flock and they would look it over really, really close and whether it was right or not, they'd find a flaw. Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't that your, nobody's sacrifice was going to be good enough. And then they would trade with extra <laughs> for one of their lambs, which your lamb, when you got done, was going to be in that thing the next day to be given to somebody else as a perfect lamb for a sacrifice. And so this was what they were doing. Bait and switch. Uh, they would come in with Roman coins and say, no, you can't give Roman coins into the offering. You've got to give these Hebrew shekels. And then they would give you a very terrible exchange rate. If you came in with shekels, they would go, no, these aren't the right shekels. These have been defiled because they've been out in the world you know they did all these things and and they literally were cheating God's people as they came to worship and this really made Jesus angry it made the father angry it should have made the priest angry you know they should have driven him out there but they were probably taking their cut from from it all so yes it was a Jesus got angry because of the severity of it people were coming into worship and they were being fleeced when they came into worship 
and uh, Jesus, it made Jesus very angry. And uh, we're going to stop here because we've run out of time. That's all right. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we ask that you give us an expectation that you're with us at all times when we come together to be gathered together. You say, where two or three are gathered, there, there you are in the midst of us. And Lord, you are here, and we thank you for that. We thank you and always ask you for an expectation that you're going to be here with us. We ask that you go with us now as we go about our business. Give us opportunities to share you with others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.